Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. You have your copy of God's Word. Let's turn now to the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 23rd chapter. And we'll be looking today at verses 7 through 12. The title of the message today, My Enemy's Enemy. Now, last Sunday, we examined our Lord's first interrogation by the Roman governor of Judea, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pilate had been awakened very early in the morning by the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men knocking at his door on his temporary residence there in Jerusalem, a building called the Praetorium. They brought three charges against Jesus that they said had to be dealt with immediately. Number one, they said he has misled the nation. That's incredibly vague and inadmissible in any court of law. Secondly, they claimed that Jesus was forbidding the citizens of Israel from paying their taxes to Caesar. Not only was that not true, it was perjury. It was an out and out lie. And Jesus, just earlier that week, when asked about that very question, told people to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then there was one truth claim that was actually true. They said he claims to be the Messiah, the King. Jesus, of course, was and is the King of kings and Lord of lords, but it's not illegal to declare something about yourself that is true. So all of these charges were false. Pilate brought Jesus inside his home and interrogated him privately. He, he determined right away that Jesus was no threat to the Roman Empire. And they came back out, he announced to the Sanhedrin that he had no intention of even hearing this case any farther, let alone putting Jesus to death. But you remember that Pilate was already on thin ice with his bosses back in Rome. Twice before in his tenure there as governor, um, the nation had come almost to the point of war and insurrection. That's the last thing Rome wanted. Remember they wanted those tax revenues and raw materials to keep flowing back to Rome. So he had two strikes on him. One more, and he knew that he would be out of a job, and so the Sanhedrin knew that, so they leveraged this truth against him. They knew if he didn't play ball, do what they wanted, they would have his job. So he did the politically expedient thing. He passed the buck. He, he got wind that Jesus was from Galilee, and he knew that Herod was uh, over Galilee, and he also was in town for the Passover festival, and he says, we'll take him to Herod. And that's where we left off last week in chapter 23. And that brings us to verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him, nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Last year, 2020, marked a very important anniversary, at least in my mind, it was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. 
maybe because it was a COVID year, but for whatever reason, it seemed to pass with an unbelievably little amount of fanfare for something that I would say is one of the most important events of the last 300 years. One of the things that I remember from studying as high school student about World War II was how it brought together entities and nations that had been at odds before. One of the most iconic pictures in U.S. history is that black and white photograph of Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, sitting next to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States, who was sitting next to Joseph Stalin, the Premier of the Soviet Union. Very different backgrounds, very different political points of view. Great Britain at that time covered a vast empire. They were imperialist and the Americans, of course, were known for their isolationist policies up until that point. They wanted to stay out of the war, but they were democratic in their form of government. And here's Joseph Stalin representing communism, which many people th felt was a great threat to the rest of the world. And yet they came together against a common enemy, that of course, Germany, led by the totalitarian leader, Adolf Hitler. And sometimes war makes for strange bedfellows, and it did. Some years later, Winston Churchill was asked about how he was able to work with a man like Stalin and, and the communists to fight against Hitler. He said Hitler was such a threat at the time that had Hitler invaded hell itself, he would have brought a favorable reference to Satan before Parliament. That's how big a threat. Now, we've been talking about ironies a lot. How ironic it is that the common enemy of the Roman Empire and the vestiges of the Hasmonean dynasty would come together with a common enemy, this suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had never harmed anyone. Up until that point, they had been at odds with one another, and because they both hated Jesus, they became friends. There's another thing I want us to see today. First of all, some of the characters in this episode, the first of which is someone I've called a pathetic puppet. Look at verse seven. And when he learned that his pilot learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Remember, neither Pilate nor Herod actually lived in Jerusalem. They had temporary headquarters there during festival times. There were so many people that would come from all over the world. They needed to be there to make sure there was not an insurrection. Now, likely, if you've read the Bible much, you are familiar with the name Herod. You may be just a little bit fuzzy about who he is, his background. That is understandable because there are actually six men in the New Testament who are mentioned, all named Herod. And they're all related to one another. And one is worse than the next. If you're using one of our reading plans, reading through the Bible this calendar year, you will need to have a program in the margin of your Bible to keep them all straight. So one of the things I want to do today is give you that program. If you've got something to write with and a piece of paper or some margin there in your Bible, write down these six names and it will help you keep these six Herods straight. The first was Herod the Great. This was the patriarch of the Herodian dynasty. This is the Herod that is mentioned in the Christmas story. You recall that he was the king of Israel. That was his title, although actually Israel by that time was a client state of the Roman Empire. And uh, this man was a builder. He restored the temple. Sometimes the temple which Jesus visited was called Herod's Temple. It's because he restored it and made it very grand. Um, remember that Herod was a very jealous ruler. And the Magi came to him and said they had seen the star in the east 
and they believed it to be an omen of a king that had been born in Israel. They want to know where he was. And uh, when they told him that the Old Testament said that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, this Herod the Great issued an edict that all of the male children two years and younger in and around Bethlehem were to be put to death with the sword. Of course, the angel of the Lord came to Joseph and Mary and warned them of his intentions and they fled down to Egypt where they stayed, where another angel came to them after Herod the Great had died and told them that it was safe to go back to their homeland. Now, upon the death of Herod the Great, his will was read. And to the surprise of a great many people, he did not leave one primary heir. He divided his territory, which was pretty vast at that time, into three territories, half of which he gave to his favorite son, Archelaus, and the other two regions were divided into uh, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. This is the Herod Philip that ruled the area east and north of Galilee, and Herod uh, Antipas was given Galilee in a region called Perea. Now stay with me. Later on in the book of Acts, we also come in contact with the next generation of Herod, a man by the name of Herod Agrippa. We know him as the first. This was the one that was very stylish. He liked nice clothes. And he had made for himself a new wardrobe that was made of white with silver threads so that when he wore it outside to give his speeches, it glimmered in the sun. And one day he was giving one of these speeches to some of his constituents, a group of men from the city of Tyre. And he gave such a great speech and he was so impressive in his appearance that they cried out spontaneously, the voice of a God and not a man. And the scripture says that Herod did not give God the glory. That is, he accepted that compliment that he was a God. And scripture says because he didn't give God the glory, at that moment his liver burst and he was consumed by worms and he died. Read that to your children at their Bible study next week. <laughs> and then later on in the book of Acts, we read about Herod Agrippa II. Remember that Paul, towards uh, the end of his ministry, was arrested in Jerusalem. And because he was a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal his case all the way to Caesar in Rome. And he did. It was a hard journey to get there. And the first place they took him was a, a city called Caesarea, which, as you might guess, was named in honor of Caesar. And there he was uh, interviewed by a series of men. And one of those was Herod Agrippa II. Uh, this is the governor who said, uh, after Paul had shared the gospel with him, that he was almost persuaded. Some of us remember old hymn we used to sing called Almost Persuaded. And it was taken from that episode with this Agrippa II. But the man we're looking at today is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He was given the title upon Herod the Great's death of Tetrarch, which means ruler of one-fourth. So his brother was given Judah and half of Herod's kingdom, and he split the other half with his brother Philip. Now, you might remember more about Herod Antipas than you think you do. You know about his politics, his family drama, and his own sinfulness. First of all, his politics. He, he truthfully was not a king. In fact, he was not allowed to use that title, though sometimes he did. He was really a, a very weak puppet of the Roman Empire. Remember I said that his brother retained the title of king or intrarch there after his father's death, but he kept it only a few short years. He was such a poor ruler that the Romans finally did away with not only him, but his entire position as king 
and replaced him with their own governors, of which Pontius Pilate became one. And Herod always lived in fear that he was going to be next, that he was going to leave that little territory that he had been left by his father. And so he was always trying to play nice, but at the same time, he resented the Romans. You may remember more about his family life. He was a wicked man. Once while he was visiting one of his brothers in Rome, he fell in love with his wife. And he had an adulterous relationship with her. And before you know it, both of them divorced their spouses and married one another and went back to Galilee together. Well, I won't go into all the details, but it ended up causing a war. Um, it was a terrible situation for a number of reasons. One, it was adulterous. Two, he stole his brother's wife. And three, this woman that both of them had been married to was their niece. And so it was an incestuous, adulterous, sordid affair. This was the kind of man he was. He's also the man you might remember who had John the Baptist put to death. John was a prophet of the Lord. and He stood at arm's length from the powers so that he could speak prophetically to them. And he preached against this relationship and it embarrassed Herod and his wife. And so it particularly infuriated the wife, a woman by the name of Herodotus. And so John the Baptist was arrested. He was being held there by Herod Antipas. And one night, under the influence of alcohol, I would imagine, Herodotus, his wife, talked her daughter into dancing seductively for her husband, Herod. He had all his friends there. He was whining and dining. He was probably intoxicated. And she came out and danced. And it pleased him so much that he declared before his friends and guests there that he would give this young girl anything she wanted up to half of his kingdom. And so she went back to her mother and says, what should I ask for? She said, forget the kingdom. I want the head of John the Baptist. That's how much she hated him. And she went back out and she said, we want the head of John the Baptist. Well, he was again backed into a corner. He really didn't want to do that. It was not a politically wise move because John the Baptist was popular. But because he'd said it in front of his friends, he couldn't lose face. And so he called for the executioner and they beheaded John the Baptist. But he wasn't satisfied with that. The other gospels tells us that at one point in time, he sought to kill Jesus. And when Jesus was warned of his plot, Jesus says, you go back and tell that fox something for me. <laughs> it was not yet time for Jesus to die. And he knew he wouldn't die at the hands of Herod, but at the hands of the Romans. This was a wicked man. And the Old Testament tells us that the wicked often flee when no one is pursuing. That is, they become paranoid about their own life. And after he killed John the Baptist, his own deluded conscience kept him awake at night. And when he heard about Jesus preaching the same message as John and that his disciples were baptizing people as John's disciples did, he assumed this was John the Baptist reincarnated. And so he felt fear. But by the time we come to the end of Jesus' life, that fear had been replaced with a desire for entertainment. He says here in verse 8, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him, some miracle. Remember that at points in Jesus' ministry, literally thousands of people followed him from village to village, not because they loved him, not because they submitted to him, but because it was entertaining to see miracles. And Herod wanted to be entertained by Jesus. And of course, Jesus 
didn't allow that. So that's Herod. Secondly, now we see the silent Savior, verse 9. Remember, Jesus has been taken. Now this is the fifth of six interrogations. The first of which he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, arrested, taken to the high priest Annas' house. From Annas he went to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin took him to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. And then Herod, as we'll see today, will send him back to Pilate. Jesus has answered some of their questions, but now he's done. Verse 9. And he, that is Herod, questioned Jesus at some length, but he answered him nothing. This is the silent Savior. Why do you think that Jesus didn't answer Herod's questions? After all, as I said, he did answer some of the Sanhedrin's questions, though not the way they wanted him to. He answered some of Pilate's questions, though not in a way that he could comprehend. But to Herod, he says nothing. Well, we're not told, to be honest, explicitly in the Bible why he didn't. But I think there's some hints that we find in the Old Testament. First, though, I think he didn't speak because he knew what the end result was going to be. He had prophesied and predicted that he was going to be put to death by the Romans. And it would have been a waste of his breath to try to defend himself. He knew he came to die. He also knew Herod's heart was cold and calloused and unmoved and had absolutely no interest in justice. This was all a facade. He was not going to participate in a facade. But I think the ultimate reason that Jesus didn't speak is because it fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. A number of times in the gospel, as they're detailing the passion of Jesus, his suffering, they'll pause to say this was done to fulfill prophecy. And here's one of those occasions. It fulfills the prophecy specifically of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Listen, by the way, Isaiah wrote 800 years before Jesus was born about the Messiah. He said of the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep who is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And so Jesus, fulfilling prophecy, is silent before Herod. Now, thirdly, there's another group of people. We've seen Herod. He's one of the characters in this episode. Jesus, the silent Savior, is the other. But there's a large and growing group of people that I've classified here as the harassing horde. Verse 10, and the chief priest and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. It's like a snowball. You remember when Jesus would go to town to town, they would pick up more people as he moved along. And that was the case uh, now that he's in Jerusalem. Uh, early, late in the night, there was not a lot of people awake. And so it was just that group of people who came out to arrest him. But now the sun's come up. The Sanhedrin is met. It's getting on to be further in the morning. The sun is higher in the sky. The words likely got out that Jesus is being interrogated and by the time they get to Herod, there's probably a large group of people forming and it's getting larger by the minute and uh, they are harassing Jesus. Chief priests and scribes are standing there accusing him and Herod with his soldiers after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Here the creator of the universe has become an object of mockery of men, a punchline for their joke. I mentioned Herod Agrippa, who dressed in that stylish robe with silver threads. I imagine it was all of the Herods that had a sense of fashion. And so 
He pulls out one of his old garments, likely, that he's not using anymore. Probably someone had given him as a gift. He had dozens of these, probably. And he puts it upon Jesus, not because he was concerned for Jesus' health. He was probably shivering there in the cold. Not because he was afraid he would go into shock, having been beaten, but because he wanted to make sport of him. This was called playing the fool. The Romans and Herod's men liked to play this game. They would take someone who was a harmless figure and make a fool out of him. They'd put a king's garment around him, put a staff in his hand and pretend to bow down and honor him. The Romans did this too later on, we'll see. They put a scarlet robe on him and a crown of thorns on his head and pretended he was the king and worshiped him as such. They would often do this, we're told by secular historians, to the, the mentally deficient. How cruel it is for someone who's mentally deficient to be made a mockery and a fool of, but that's how they thought of Jesus. As I read this episode several times this week, my mind went back to yet another messianic prophecy, and that is in the 22nd Psalm. And so if you'll hold your place there in Luke 23rd, let's go to the Old Testament, the 22nd Psalm. It's a very famous Psalm because it is the Psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually quoting this Psalm. And beginning in verse 6, the psalmist, again writing hundreds of years before Jesus came, prophesies like this. He says, but I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. That's what they were doing. They were sneering. They were mocking Jesus. Remember when he was placed on the cross, they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. Verse nine, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Jesus was there alone. His very disciples abandoned him. None to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. These people who are mocking him and nipping at him verbally, some punching him, we're told. They were like animals of prey circling. The apostle Peter in one of his epistles describes Satan that way, isn't he? He's a lion roaming about seeking who he can destroy, who he can devour. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a play-by-play -play of Christ's suffering and death, isn't it? He's mocked, he's made fun of, he's made a fool of. Eventually it turns physical. They pierce his hands and feet. They place him on the cross. Even there they surround him and tell lies against him, slander him. They don't give him anything to drink. He's parched. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. 
his bones are out of joint and we're told and when you study the crucifixion itself, that's exactly what happens from the effect of gravity being held up between heaven and earth and his heart melted like wax. This is nothing but the death of Jesus upon the cross prophesied many years earlier. This is what our Lord endured for all of us so that we may be redeemed. Well, this is an interesting story. It's an absolutely true story. I think we can learn a number of moral lessons from it, if nothing else. Uh, the one that comes to my mind is there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Herod and Pilate, two wicked men representing two evil regimes working together against a common enemy. We've seen that many times through human history. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. These men who couldn't stand each other, who were suspicious of one another's motives, were united in their common interest in killing Jesus. But here I think is our application today. Our Lord is no longer here in bodily form to persecute and mock, is he? After he was resurrected, after 40 days, he ascended in the presence of many witnesses from the Mount of Olives back into heaven where the scripture says he is seated today at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming again for his church. If Jesus were here in bodily form, his enemies, motivated by satanic influence, because he's really the God of this world, would persecute him. They would mock him and, and jeer him and kill him all over again if that were possible. But he's no longer here in bodily form to persecute. But his church is. And you remember what the risen Lord Jesus said to that man Saul, who was on his way to Damascus from Jerusalem to persecute more Christians, struck him blind with his glory and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so closely identifies with his people, his elect, his church, that he refers to the church and himself interchangeably with pronouns. Jesus said to his inner circle of disciples, when he was preparing them for his death, that a servant is not greater than his master. He's calling upon them, I believe, to observe how the world treated him, how the powers that be did everything they could to silence him, how they ultimately put him to death on the cross. And he said, you're my servants, I'm the master. And we all know through experience that a servant can't expect better treatment than the master. He's saying, you can expect persecution. Indeed, the New Testament says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can't expect persecution. And when we, as evangelicals, sell a gospel to people that come to Jesus, become a Christian, and your life's going to be easier, we tell a lie. Because Jesus said, if you're going to follow him, you have to take up your cross daily to do so. And the cross at the time of Jesus was not a decoration on the wall or a piece of jewelry. It was an executioner's device and the worst one ever invented. The very thought of it struck fear into the heart of countless people. And Jesus says to follow him is the path of the cross. He was warning them that uh, the closer you identify with him, the more likely it is you're going to have some pain in your life. And that's why so many people today try to have, on one hand, they say a relationship with Jesus, but they stand far away so as not to 
ever come in contact with any persecution. Jesus says you can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. And so I think this informs us of at least five points I want to make in closing. Number one, if we believe the Bible that treatment of Christians and God's church is going to to grow worse and more severe, as Jesus said in Matthew, these things are the beginning of birth pains, not the end. As time goes on, they're going to become more intense and more severe as the day of his coming approaches, then it informs us about some things. Number one, we as a church need to prepare for persecution. Persecution that we're already seeing the first salvos of, some that we're seeing in nations very close to us that will soon be on our doorstep. How do you prepare? I remember what Jesus said to his disciples the night of his arrest. Watch and pray that you not be overwhelmed by temptation. That's why Peter and the other disciples ran away and hid and denied Jesus when the trial came, although they thought they were ready. They had a sword. It's enough. They weren't ready because they slept when they should have been praying. And dear friends, I fear the evangelical church writ large is sleepwalking through a time we ought to be preparing for persecution. And I call upon us to pray, to seek the Lord and fast and ask for help and strength. We're not asking that we not face persecution. People just as faithful or more so than us face persecution for 2,000 years. We're asking that through that persecution, he would make us fitter instruments for his glory. Because that's his point. What does James say? That's our second application. Count it all joy when the persecution comes. Because it's the trials, it's persecutions that sanctify us. It's the means God uses to make his individual Christians and his churches more like Christ. To separate them from sin. And anything that makes us more like Jesus is a cause for joy, not grief. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when various kinds of trials come into your life. And then I would say, thirdly, fear not for the future. We're not facing anything that our ancestors didn't face, and faithful Christians in every epoch of history have faced. The Lord is faithful. And we're not saying nothing bad is going to happen. We're not Pollyannish. We're not pie in the sky. We're not pretending, well, just, uh, you know, forget about that. Everything's going to be fine. No, everything's not going to be fine in the short term. It's going to be hard for those in this room. It's going to be particularly hard for our children and grandchildren. We need to prepare them for that. But Jesus said to his church to be wise as serpents, humble as doves. We're not to be Pollyannish, but we're also not to be naive. There's no reward in heaven for naivete. (laughs) It's no fruit of the spirit to be naive. Neither are we naive, neither do we have a death wish. We're not hoping and praying for persecution. We've just been told that it's coming and to get ready. And if we're wise, as Jesus said we should, we ought to prepare ourselves and our children for that. But fifthly and finally, most importantly, because the Bible says it's going to get worse and worse, 
make sure that you are on God's side. As I study history, there have been entities and institutions and nations even who have claimed during times of conflict and warfare that God is on their side. That really is the wrong question. Are you on God's side? <laughs> he, he is the one who's ultimately going to reign victorious over this world. How can you be on God's side? The only way that any person can be on God's side is if they receive God's Son, if they believe on Jesus. Anything less than believing on Jesus is declaring yourself the enemy of God. You say, Pastor, that, that seems awfully harsh. Well, I didn't say that. The Bible did. The Scripture says that fellowship with the world is enmity with God. You can either be accepted and in with the powers that be, or you can be have God on your side, but you can't have both. <laughs> because the powers that be in this world really are pawns and puppets. We talked about Herod Antipas being pawns and puppets of the Roman emperor. The institutions and even the governments of this world that are anti-Christ and anti-his church and anti-Christianity are really puppets of their king, the devil. And what did Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6 about our spiritual warfare? We don't wrestle. We don't fight against flesh and blood. It's not other human beings. It's against the principalities and powers of the air. It's Satan and all of those under his control. And so Christian, Christian parents, prepare yourself for persecution and help to prepare your children for that that will surely come in their lifetime. And when it comes, don't be overwhelmed or depressed. Count it all joy. God is using that for his glory to make you more like Jesus and a more useful instrument in his hands. And don't lose sleep at night over what may come. Fear not. The Lord will be with you wherever you go. Don't be naive and Pollyannish about the fact that uh, we live in this bubble that can't be penetrated. We've seen recently it certainly can be and will be. Be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. But most importantly, make sure that God is on your side. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, Jesus told the Philippian jailer. No other name given among men by where we must be saved. That, that is the gospel message that we hold. That is the key to the kingdom. It's the only hope for our nation and the only hope for humanity. Let's thank the Lord for that blessed truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the word of God. And I thank you that we see the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ played out almost in real time before us. And so far in this chapter, we've seen three characters. Pontius Pilate, who didn't have anything against Jesus, but he was willing to ignore his truth claims because he was married to his job. Didn't want to lose what he had. And uh, Father, we've seen the Sanhedrin who were hostile and angry and they hated Jesus and everything he stood for and would not be satisfied until he was obliterated. 
And this morning we've seen Herod Antipas. He just wanted to show. He wanted to be entertained. And when that didn't happen, he didn't have a use for Jesus either. Father, we see people in all three categories in our society. They all three have one thing in common. If they do not repent and call upon the name of the Lord, they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. And we take no joy in that. Because before you pursued us and found us and redeemed us and regenerated us, we were on that same trajectory and path. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty in which you chose us and saved us. And you are sanctifying us. And one day you will bring us to glory. But it will be through many dangers, toils, and snares that we get to heaven, I fear. Father, I don't have a death wish, and I don't wish any persecution on anybody, but I do know as a student of history that wherever persecution has come, it didn't silence the church, rather it strengthened the church. It pruned the church and made it pure and more useful. And Father, I'm seeing that unless I'm mistaken. Even in our own church, through the difficulties of the last year, Lord, you're pruning us and you're purifying us and you're making us not less useful, but more useful for your kingdom. And so, Lord, we count that joy. Give us wisdom. Give us strength to face whatever lies ahead. All for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.